1: recording daryl we are live welcome to my podcast how are you feeling tonight
2: uh you know what i'm feeling all right i'm 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 glad
1: to be here yes and I'm, I'm glad you are here because and i think like you just said a little bit earlier i think we're gonna have a good conversation just because this is one of the topics ish that i kind of felt like i've had trouble with growing up just i've never felt like i am okay. a trusting person and i've always had questions about it you know maybe um You know, who, what, where, I guess the big whys, you know, uh, why do I have trust issues and across all, not just relationships, but, you know, work relationships and just all different areas of my life. But before we start digging and going too far, why don't you just give the audience listeners a little bit of a quick background about you just so they kind of know what we're getting
2: into here. Sure. So uh, I was born and raised in a small town in northern Canada, uh, fairly isolated. and because the conditions were pretty harsh, people had to pull together. Sure. And I always had the sense that if you could help someone, you should. And so, uh, I grew up, you know, in a fairly rugged environment, um, had a fairly challenging, uh, time as a, as a young man or as a youth, um, In part because of, you know, my, uh, my father had been in an automobile accident when I was quite young, uh, lost his leg, Mm. broke his hip, cracked his pelvis, crushed several vertebrae in his back, and he was in pain for the rest of his life. And so he struggled with that and, and self-medicated with alcohol. Uh, it created a, a challenging environment. Um, When I was 17, I was playing junior hockey and I I got jumped by a fan with a club, uh, shattered my helmet, knocked me unconscious, Uh, not good. Um, And so that background led me to have, I guess, more empathy than most. And I moved to Victoria uh, on Vancouver Island to go to school and I found that people would just come up to me and sit down next to me and say, "I'm having a hard time." You know, I'd be on the bus, and a stranger would sit down next to me and say, "I'm really having a tough day." And I thought, if this is going to keep happening to me, maybe I should get paid for this. <laughs> um, so I agree. I start, oh yeah. So I started down the path towards becoming a clinical psychologist, and and I kind of wanted to understand why people just felt comfortable opening up to me, and and why people seemed so comfortable with me. Um, and so I was working on crisis lines and working with families in crisis and troubled teens and street kids and, uh, trying to hone those skills. And then I realized that a lot of the people I was working with were, were just doing the best they could. You know, it was, a uh, it was easy to see a path forward for them, a, a way for them to get from A to B, but it had taken them a long time to get where they were. It was going to take them a long time to turn things around. And I thought that'll drive me insane. And so I shifted into public admin, started working in native land claims, and they would ask me these deep philosophical questions like, what is self-government? Or what will it look like 50 years after claims are settled with natives? And the last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for over 100 years they should trust us? Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's a really good question. And so I went to Duke and, and wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments at the business school there. And uh, yeah, and so I ended up uh, leaving there, going to McKinsey and Company, which is one of the larger management consulting firms. Um, and they they said, "Wow, well, you've got good client hands. Let's send you to the worst places possible." And so, so I would end up in places where there'd been strikes or where people weren't getting along or. And so I was getting a chance to apply the material that I'd learned that I'd theorized about. And then I was injured in a car accident. Um ended up with post concussion syndrome, couldn't pull those kinds of hours anymore. Yeah. And so I started my own little company called Trust Unlimited and I've spent the last 20 years helping people understand what trust is and how it works and most importantly how to build it.
1: That was a whole lot right there, Daryl. Yeah.
2: That's a lot. Sorry, mm-hmm. I kind of went on for a bit no. there, didn't I? <laughs>
1: No, I, and uh, it was good stuff. It's pretty – It's I, I just I have a couple questions like I was thinking of while you were talking and yeah. I was losing. But, you know, when you started, you know, going down the route or whatever you want to say that of helping people, I knew that, you know, people were opening up to you. And I think you said something about you kind of wanted to figure out why, you know, people would open up to you. Just, you know, you, like you said, you were just sitting on a bench one day and somebody came up and started talking to you. I mean, what did right. you – what did you conclude? I mean, after your experience and your life journey, I mean, what did you come to realize? Hey, why do people like to come tell me or open up? It's a up? Really, it's really good hard, question. It's really hard for people to do that, especially with a stranger, you know, just to go sit down. Yeah. To say, hey, man, and, uh, life's so <clears> or something.
2: Well, there's, there's still an element of that in me when, you know, I, I'm teaching or I'm at school. My students will say, you seem strong but safe. Right, there's this blend of strength in you, but but no menace. And I think partly there's an openness to me. uh, There's a friendliness that I start. I I have a positive story about people and human beings in general. Um, and I think people feel that. Yeah. You know, neurolinguistic programming would probably suggest that there's a way that I hold myself, that a way that I. And my body language those kinds of things that's very open and and welcoming and, and warm um i care about people and it shows up so um i think that there's an element of that 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 we sense in one another sure um you know and, and it's not to say that i'm you know always nice i'm not um uh there are times when i can become very protective um and i i don't like bullies of course um yeah so you know i think that people just get that sense from me that i'm that i'm friendly and that i'm caring and that i that i want to be helpful
1: and and i'm glad you are putting off that sense into in to a perspective just because it seems like in the modern world today there's not a lot of a lot of trust that can go on especially you know it's one of those yeah. walking up to a stranger and opening up to him and not and just thinking that you might have a good read on the person saying oh yeah this guy seems strong and trustworthy and safe but you know it could just be one of these machiavellian tactics where you know somebody just needs or not machiavellian but manipulative tactics where people just go and you know take you know take advantage of somebody just because they earn their trust or whatever and and i don't know if that's just because of the modern world compared to you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago before social media yeah. phones, before, you know, if I were to say something about, you know, the type of day I had and something that was very personal to me, and then you could instantly tweet it and I'll be on the whole world in, in a matter of seconds. So do you think, I guess that's my next question though. Do you think that just being in this, I guess, era of time, it's harder for people to trust and not only just on a personal level, but trust their, you know, relatives, friends, and then take that trust into the work place itself.
2: Yes. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's harder uh, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, the, the things that we used to do, so we all have the ability to build trust. Some are just better than others. Right. And, and those who aren't very good have a lever that they pull and they pull it over and over again. And those who are better have multiple levers that they pull. And those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. The struggle we face right now is, as you point out, you know, our vulnerabilities are different than they used to be. So, you know, I can I can make a mistake and the whole world knows about it. Exactly. Um, Or I can even maybe not make a mistake, but have something that someone can frame in a way that sounds like I've made a mistake. Sure. And people don't give me the benefit of the doubt the way that they maybe once would have. Um, historically, our communities were much tighter than they are now because we didn't have as much access to the rest of the world as we do with social media. And so if I screwed up, it was more likely that people knew my background, they knew my history, they could interpret my actions through that lens. And there was also a chance for me to recover, right? To make amends to, to... mitigate the damage that I've done.
1: Of course,
2: There's less of that now. And for me, trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. So when we're deciding to trust people, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. One is how likely am I to be harmed? And this, which is perceived uncertainty. And the second question is if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt? Which is perceived vulnerability. And we've seen significant spikes in uncertainty. We just don't tend to know each other as well. And, you know, our relationships are a mile wide and an inch deep. And so we've had this huge spike in uncertainty. We're seeing changing values and norms. We're seeing, you know, a pandemic hits us. We're seeing technological advances and changes. And so there's just these spikes all over the place of uncertainty that are making us incredibly uncomfortable. And so we need to be more thoughtful and intentional than we've ever had to be. But we combine that with a lot of people not knowing how to do that.
1: I like that saying you just said that our relationships are a mile wide, but an inch deep. Yeah. And that makes so much sense because again, kind of touching on social media and things of that nature where people put, and I'm generally speaking, of course, averagely. yeah Most people will put their, their focus into their followers and likes and which, you know, they have, a thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand followers, whatever, whatever right. it is. Really, when you sit an inch deep, you know, like how really does a person know their followers? You know, I mean, it's just, you're basing everything on that and just saying that, Oh, and like, you know, if you boast about having 4,000 people who follow you on social media, it's, well, do you even know these people? I mean, you don't know what type right. of following. and And what, what kind of, and I guess taking it back to trust, though, I mean, but out of those 4,000 people, if you had to go and relay some type of information to them, how many of you of them would you actually trust
2: with that? Right. And, and how loyal would they be if something went wrong? Exactly. Would they be there for you if if you all of a sudden were struggling with something?
1: Exactly. Do you, do you know who, uh, and I don't, this is kind of a tangent, but do you know who the liver king is by chance? No. Okay, so real quick, I mean, I want to go down a deep path on this, but. This kind of brings me to this example that he's a big Instagram influencer. And his whole background, his whole thing he uh advertises is about following to ancestral ways of life, basically, where you okay. Know, you eat raw meat, you eat raw liver, um, you know, you go outside and you work out, you get so many hours of sunshine, stay, things like that. You know, be true to your word, integrity, you know, have a good community, kind of trust, you know, just things like this, like that. Sure. But, and, you know, he said he's got a supplement line and sells. I think he sells workouts. Like, don't quote me on that. But anyway, it came out this past week about him. You know, he, he's really he looks great. He walks everywhere with a shirt off. You know, he's got eight pack abs basically defined. Right. Beard. And that's but that's how he's selling everything. So but it came out. Long story short, it came out this week that he's been using steroids for over a year. And that's the reason right. he looks what he likes. And he has a huge following and he's trying to sell all these people, you know, technically what he does to look like the way he does. You know, right but now, in my opinion, I don't know how many people his followers left or dropped him off or whatever, but he had to send out a huge apology basically just talking about, hey, I'm sorry for what I did. I, you know, I didn't even... You know, have my own integrity in hand. I just let everyone down. But so it's right. like that, where people were really buying into something like that, and they didn't really know who this guy was, but the, whatever, they were just kind of picking up just what he was selling. And I hope that kind of made right. sense at that point, and I hope that it
2: absolutely does. Yeah. yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. And so we see, you know, for me, the model that I use, like I said, trust is the willingness to make yourself vulnerable when you can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. Sure. And so people make themselves vulnerable to this liver king guy by buying his supplements, by subscribing to his channel, by spending time and energy and resources, focusing on his his approach to life and and adopting it, believing that they're headed in the direction that he's promised them. Sure. And and then they find out that he's cheating. Yes. Um, And, you know, there will inevitably be some who forgive him for that. Because uh, of other messages that he shares and sends that they find compelling. Um, but this is, you know, and, and we've seen politicians just routinely lie and exactly. uh, and then lie again, right? Um, and so we're struggling because the context of the world is propagating people who we shouldn't be following. The rules of the game are leading to us getting leaders who are, you know, of political nature or some of these social media leaders who are really focused on their own self-interest and not on what's best for those they lead. I agree. And so we get these, you know, really profound narcissists. Um, And when I was working for McKinsey, we, we talked to, a number of political leaders in Canada. And we talked to a bunch of business leaders and our, our thinking was we needed a business leader to be the next leader of Canada, a prime minister. And all of the ones we approached said, why would I take the pay cut and why on earth would I put my family through that? Hmm. And so a lot of times we see folks, you know, and I've, I've, part of my work is I work with, with senior leaders and a lot of them, really struggle with moving up the ranks because they feel like it's a trade-off between their own goals and objectives and the well-being of their family. And so our structures are set up so that narcissists and people who are really prone to their own self-aggrandizement are the ones who vie for those positions. And the people who are perhaps more sensible, more, more guided by looking out for those that they lead to stop at a certain point and say, you know, this is far enough. I'm not willing to make the future trade-offs. And so, you know, part of my work talks about uncertainty and vulnerability. Well, Well, context is one of the pieces of uncertainty. You know, I think about it as the formal rules and informal rules of the game that drive us to behave in certain ways. And a lot of times when I'm teaching a class, I'll say, you know, if you could be anywhere with anyone doing anything right now, How many of you would be here listening to me? And I I stopped doing that, Chris, because it wasn't good for my self-esteem. But, um, you know, then the question becomes, why are you here? Yeah. Right? Why are you here with me? And usually it's because of the context. You know, I need this credential. uh, I've got a problem. I'm struggling with something. Um, You know, there's something going on in their environment that pushes them to want to seek out what I'm trying to deliver. Um and so for me, you know, we can we can build trust by understanding the context that we each experience and, and face because it helps us predict how someone else is going to behave. It helps reduce uncertainty about them. And you and I could actually take steps within the context to reduce uncertainty for one another. I could I could put up a peace bond, right? I can make public commitments to you. Yes. Um we can we could write a contract with one another. That constrains our behavior so that it makes it easier for you and I to predict each other, which which allows us to trust each other more.
1: Is that one of the issues, like if a person is very untrusting just because of past experience or whatever, that they need these steps and something like that to say, hey, you know, it's kind of like taking baby steps here. We'll take step one, just like you said. And right. see how this works out. And that way I can, I can earn your trust from there and let's see how this plays out from there. I mean, is that just, yeah? is that what, is that what
2: you would so, model? Oh, go ahead. So what I would do, what I, what I tend to do is, you know, I, I lay out in, in the, so I wrote a book um, called building trust. And in the book, I lay out sort of 10 levers that we can pull to build trust with other people. And as I was saying before, you know, we each have the ability to build trust, but, what I try to do is make people more aware of the different levers we can pull and then show them how to pull those um, and then help them sort of diagnose. And so for me, trust, you know, uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. And we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. And that threshold comes from our past experiences and our, our cultural heritage and the values and norms that we have. So there's there's things that go into that to make us either more or less trusting. If we believe that the risk is goes beyond that threshold, we don't trust. And if it's beneath it, then we do. And so building trust is actually really simple. It's where does uncertainty come from? And how do I take steps to reduce that? And where's the vulnerability coming from for the other person? And how do I take steps to help them manage that? And so there are four levers within uncertainty. Okay. And three of those come from you and I as individuals. Right. So, And this is work that was done by a friend of mine, Roger Mayer, in 1995. Him and his colleagues proposed these three levers, and they are benevolence, integrity, and ability. And benevolence is, do you have my best interest at heart? And are are you going to act in my best interest, even if it's not in your own short-term best interest? Hmm. Integrity is, do I follow through on my promises, and do my values actually line up with the actions that I take? And then ability is, do I have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? And so those are three of the levers. And then context is the other lever within uncertainty. And we talked briefly about context and how you and I could explain to each other how we're constrained and the values that we have and things that matter to us that would make it easier to predict. But I can also pull the benevolence lever. And at the start of this, you and I both were were doing that. We were saying what would a good experience look like for you? Yes. And, and you were asking me the same. What's a good experience look like for you? And so we're showing each other a bit of benevolence, right? I want this to be a successful podcast for you. Uh, I want you to walk away from this thinking, wow, that was really great. I hope my guests really, my uh, listeners really enjoyed that and got something from it. Sure, I agree. And so when we start thinking about how do we pull those levers, you know, a lot of times what I'll do is, is I'll get people to practice in my workshops and in the masterclass that I do, I'll get them to practice pulling those levers. So I'll give them a template for a conversation. And for for benevolence, it looks like this. You and I are having a conversation and I say, well, this guy, Daryl talked to me about benevolence. He said it's part of trust and, and it means having someone's best interest at heart. I think I do that, but it doesn't always seem to land. Have you ever had that experience where you You tried to do something in someone's interest and it didn't land? Plenty of times. Yeah, exactly. And so the other person will go, yeah, absolutely. And then I'll say, well, tell me about a time when somebody really did have your back. You know, what did that look like? What did they do? How did it feel? And so now I've got you thinking about times when someone was looking out for you. Someone was on your side. They are in your corner. And as you start telling me about that experience, I start getting hints. I start getting a sense of what benevolence looks like for you. And I've included you now in the conversation. And then I said, well, Chris, what would it look like if I was benevolent to you? What does success look like for you? And how do I help you get there? Can I introduce you to people? Can I promote the podcast? Can I? What can I do to help you be successful? Sure. And now all of a sudden it's transparent, right? And as we go along, I can refer back to it and so that's how we pull the lever more effectively and you know i do those for i do that for each of those four uncertainty levers when it comes to vulnerability there's there's this understanding of what do i think is at stake and then how do i value it so what do i think is at stake with you and i having this conversation well i'm going to share and be vulnerable and and tell you stories about my life um people may think highly of me or they may think, oh, that guy's a, you know, he's weak. He was attacked by somebody and he didn't, wasn't able to fend them off or, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, Or he's crying about, you know, how hard his life was. And so there are different, me being open and honest and and forthcoming with you. There's some people who are going to appreciate that and some people who may not. Yes. And so that's the vulnerability that I experience with you. Yeah. And then, Understanding our contexts, you know, if me understanding your context allows you to build trust with me because it reduces my uncertainty, you understanding my context helps you understand how I'm vulnerable.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Yes. And so, so we can take steps to actually be proactive and build trust with each other. And it's like you said, these sort of baby steps where we're trying these different levers. We try benevolence, we try integrity. We try ability. We explain the context a little bit to reduce uncertainty. All of these things are ways. And and for you, you know, you said that you've struggled to have trust with others at times. Yes. There's also a series of questions you can ask that make that will make you more comfortable.
1: Ooh. Well, before I want. So to you get, can ask.
2: Yeah, I want to go get ahead.
1: Into, I want to get into that. But as you were talking there, I was talking. I was thinking about you know how you th- thought based on what you were saying, you know, there'll be people out there who would just might either think you're, you're weak or why didn't he fight back or something like that. But, you know, and it's easy for other people to do that when they're outside looking in. And I guess getting that from is that, you know, I've heard on another podcast, somebody say, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. So for example, you, you know, getting attacked by a fan and, they broke your helmet with a hockey stick or whatever. That's what I think you said, and then somebody with a club, yeah, yeah. With, and somebody else who can't really, who didn't go down that same life path you did, or life journey or life experience, whatever you want to say. But you know, and the worst thing that ever happened to them was somebody cut them off in traffic. You know, right? So it's really hard to relate like that. It's and for that person, I guess it really is to say, oh, you know, I would if I would have been there, I probably would have know done x y and z or whatever but it's really not that easy because you don't know you don't really know what you would have done i mean i guess it's fight or flight or, or whatever but and yeah i don't really know what my point was to that was but i guess it was just that you know just trying you can't i guess there's so many opinions out there that everyone likes to say and talk about you know they would done x y and z but you know re- really would you have that i mean and you don't you know and people well, I got, about taking things out of context you don't know we don't even know the whole story we just know hey the fan jumps right. out of there and just hits you over the head or whatever that's all we know yeah right? yeah so i guess that's my whole point. Yeah. they don't know every little detail and everything that was put together so it's easy for somebody to say something about that when especially when they've never gone through something to that extreme
2: there's a profound point that comes from that chris and that, that is that we interpret the world through, through stories. Yes, and so people may have a narrative of you know, I walk through the world untouchable, Um, and I would have you know. So from my perspective, I got jumped from behind, and the guy was much bigger than me, and the first shot to the back of the head, I was out. Um, so I saw it on video, um, but. You know, for me, the story is not around the assault or the attack. It's how I responded to it afterwards, after I'd been injured, after I'd suffered a severe concussion. There was every opportunity for me to just give up, of course, and crawl into a hole and feel sorry for myself. I didn't do that. And it it instead taught me empathy. It taught me an understanding for other people who are going through the helplessness, the hopelessness, the struggle, the pain that I went through. Um, and so that's the story that I carry. And you're right, everyone's got a different narrative. And this is one of the challenges that we face. Um, because after we make that trust decision, we have you know perceived outcomes. And it's exactly that it's our perception of what just happened. And your listeners are going to be listening to this and some of them are going to find it profoundly meaningful. They're going to listen to the exact same podcast and some of them are going to go, well, that wasn't that, that interesting to me. And so in part, this is another place where we can lean in. You and I are having this exchange, this positive experience, at least it's you know positive for me. Um, and we can share our stories with each other so that we come up with a shared narrative of what's happened here. And then that feeds back into our next interaction, either with each other or people similar to us. Yes. And so our conversations around what's happened and and narrative around the outcome and and the expectation, um, you know, it's, it's part of that lever pulling process that I talk about. And it feeds back. And in the middle of all this is our emotional states, whether we like or dislike somebody else. And, you know, you and I, uh, you had a bit of technical snafu. You and I both kind of laughed about it at the, before we even started. Right. And so there's this positive feeling towards each other. This, You know, I, I tend to like you. Yes. Um, and so that makes me look for confirming evidence of that positive story that I have about you. And it makes me more likely to trust you. And it makes me more likely to see the outcomes of this experience as positive, which is going to make me like you even more. And so we start this virtuous cycle. And, you know, this is where most of the trust literature treats people like they're rational actors. And we just aren't. And so this is why these long term disputes are so resilient. You know, the fight between Democrats and Republicans, the the disagreements between the police and the communities they serve, the, the differences based on gender or race, you know, climate change, all of these things, they become emotional. And we can't bring rational arguments to an emotional problem. Because when people start to dislike each other, they find confirming evidence for reasons not to like each other,
1: yes,
2: and they don't trust each other, and they see the outcomes of those exchanges negatively. And it makes them like each other even less.
1: Is Do you think that's because
2: maybe a propaganda marketing
1: and trusting individuals who that they believe truly is like, you know, look, like we just talked about the liver king. But, you know, they're the I don't want to say the almighty, but they're the all knowing, I guess, and that whatever they say is automatically great. You know, they they live in these echo chambers. But rather than going down. And just doing research and looking at and seeing what the opposing viewpoint is of whether it be racism, climate change, uh COVID-19, just anything you're right on. And then, but and 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 I'm and I guess you know, they put so much trust into this one person, whether it be, you know, they get in their information from whoever they're like Elon Musk on Twitter and whatever he's saying is, you know, right books, golden. And then Somebody on the other side, they just don't even want to hear anything that could be like, well, I don't, you know, whether it just be like, well, I don't know quite like that. Let's let's dial it down a notch and think about it this way, just because it's an opposing viewpoint, whereas and we get locked into these chambers where it's so hard to even have these type of conversations just because of people always wanting to be right. And yeah, and that's why maybe the world is so polarized now, just because. And I, I maybe I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just standing on one side of the you know one side of the road compared to the other one, just because they're putting so much trust into one person, even though they don't. It's probably the wrong person they should be trusting.
2: Maybe that's right. right. Well, and and part of the challenge we face now, and I face this in my personal life, is is the struggle we have to agree on even data, right? Even the facts, and uh the sources of information that we get that that skew the message one way or another, um, you know, and, and the undermining of of people's trust in, in mainstream media. Um, But the, the very people who undermine trust in mainstream media then tout information from fringe media, like it's supposed to be more reliable somehow. Hmm. And, and so we end up, really struggling to even have the foundation for a discussion. Yes. Um, and so a lot of times, you know, uh, approaches I take, you know, I've got a, a friend of mine who who's a strong, devout anti-vaxxer. And he really wanted to debate this with me. And I said, look, I, I've been vaccinated. I'm I'm not trying to change your mind because you've thought about this and you're clearly quite passionate about it but I've already been vaccinated. There's no take back. So I don't, I'm not sure why we're even having this conversation. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and he thought about it for a bit and he said, well, I guess I'm just really scared. And I said, I can't, I can't really help you with that because I got vaccinated. I I'm fine. And I, and I no longer thinking about it that much. Sure. Um, and I said, I certainly don't want to have a, a long torturous debate about it. Um, no, and so, you know, we're struggling to even have those conversations. And and it was a good approach with that particular friend because it caused him to pause and think, you know, and, and he has since come back to me with more anti-vaxxing stuff. And he said, well, you know, there's real problems with trust in, in government. And I said, sure there is, but there's also problems with trust in the anti-vaxxer community. And so, you know, the trust levels are really low all over. Yes, and so so it's a it's a challenge to put forth you know even data now that the other side doesn't disagree with, um or that we don't question profoundly.
1: Yeah, that's that's a, so those. I, I I want to jump in just real quick, just because. Yeah. I, I don't I don't mean to interrupt you, but just with that point that when I was going through you know, college, getting my bachelor's and my even my master's degree that, you know, depending on the topic, depending on what you're writing about thesis, I didn't do a dissertation or anything. But I found out that you can make data almost say anything that you want it to say. You know, if you do it correctly and put down whatever facts and figures and charts and anything you want. So whatever you're arguing, you can almost say it. By this, in this, whatever you want to say, but but even by just leaving out certain little like demographics, for example, or whatever, just because that doesn't fit my my narrative, so I I don't need to include this, you know. And like for example, I can't remember, kind of going back on the fitness game a little bit, but it was like sixties, seventies, or eighties. But when uh, they found out it was fully proven how the sugar was actually paying these certain studies to. Blame the obesity rates on was it trans fats or something right then and it wasn't sugar. yeah yeah and, and it was like well and then and it just you know what the narrative went on over there oh we should be it's just it's the fats not the sugar yeah sugar's good don't worry about it so that's I, that's all i wanted to say was how i easily found out and even today when stuff is even being uh compiled and information is being compiled and you read the study that it's like it's OK to ask questions that are like, wait, you right. know, why did they do it this way? OK, so what would happen if they would have included, you know, chart A, B and C that they didn't include or or ask other people who, you know, didn't take the vaccine versus who did take your vaccine? You know, stuff like that. That was right. and that was kind of mind blowing to me just because that that I always thought, oh, it's a study. It's right here it's always true and it's not always I believe it not always the case yes
2: right and that's so that's a great insight and and partly you know there's a famous saying and i can't remember who said it but it's lies damn lies and statistics <laughs> um i like that. and you're right you know we can so uh my now ex-wife and i disagreed about sending my son to french immersion here in canada and and she she said you know you haven't done any research and and so i She was right. I hadn't done as much research as I could have. So I went, I looked at a study and it basically said, you know, kids in French immersion do better on English composition than their peers. And they're as good as them on everything else. Wait, what is French real quick? Well, it's, it's teaching a kid all their basic skills. So math, reading, writing, everything in French rather than English. Okay. I've never heard of that. Okay. You shouldn't have. (laughs) So, so, uh, because my experience with it is it does a terrible job of teaching them some of those basic fundamental skills that they need in terms of mathematics and uh, science and some of those other things, because they're struggling to translate while they're trying to learn this other thing as well. Um, And so I took a look at the study and I showed it to her and she goes, yeah, see, there you go. They do just as well. I said, now look at the footnote. And the footnote said that children in French immersion came from families with higher socioeconomic backgrounds, higher education levels, smaller class sizes, and they were screened for learning disabilities. And so those classes were doing just as well as classes with kids who were having profound learning disabilities, came from disadvantaged homes. I said, so they they have pulled them down from being what they should be, which is excelling in all these topics and made them average. And so it's that notion of critical thinking that we seem to be missing a lot of that notion of questioning some of these results yes and you know thinking critically about how these stories are framed for us by the media or by people who have a self-interest um and you know the the places that they focus and so Recently we've seen uh, kerfuffle between, you know, uh Trump has complained about a uh, finding that was that was released recently about uh Twitter and uh Biden's son, right? And his laptop. Yeah, the 100%. And i got it. Right. Yes. And so the focus that he has and that that you know Fox News and some of the other places have is on the cover up. And the decision not to share some of this information at a time when it might have been meaningful or critical. And the focus that the other side has is on Trump's response and his call to terminate the parts of the Constitution and just put him back in power. And so we've got this set of information in front of us, but we're seeing very different narratives pushed on us. And... You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say which one is right or wrong. I'm just gonna say that it's problematic that we're not getting the whole story, of being allowed to decide for ourselves.
1: Yeah, well, that's what we should do. I mean, it's is that a and that's another question though. And you know, and I've never been to Canada. Don't really know. Okay, know a little bit about it. But well, not, you're welcome anytime, buddy. Well, once I get my passport, I'll I'll, I'll come over there and check things out. So, <laughs> I hear it's beautiful, but I guess my point is though. And I, and I, we don't have to go down an educational soapbox here, but is that also a thing with the world today, where you know we're being taught ultimately always what to think and not really how to think for ourselves? And so it's like, oh, go get your news from CNN, go get your news from Fox News, and and, and also depending on which side you lean on, oh, I'm only going to watch Fox news, Fox News, and whatever they say is right. the golden ticket. So, but instead of like, I guess we've kind of touched on a little bit earlier though, but. Hey, well, let me think about this in my own way rather than just what – and I don't even know who the big anchors on the shows are anymore – rather than just what they're telling me to. Let me take the facts and let me right. what I think about it.
2: Yeah, I I think that um, – so, wow. Well, I'm, I'm going to say something that may not be popular now, Chris. That's
1: okay. Well, that's that's what, uh, Free speech on this show. Sandy.
2: Okay, so, buddy, I think that the U.S. is systematically underinvested in education. Uh, for exactly that reason, um, that they like people to not think too much, sure, because um, it makes it easier for them to be controlled. Well, and it makes it easier for you to share the narrative with them. Well, in um,
1: in terms like that, yes, I would agree that, and even looking on the educational system, it seems that, in my opinion, we've gone. And I, you know, I'm 36 years old, so I don't know how school is going through K through 12th right now, but. It seems that we are not we. I'm I'm not, but the educational system is more fo- focused on mediocrity. And right, and it's for example with kids growing up now playing the victimhood mentality and and saying that oh uh, it's too hard to get you know like when I was in school I think a 94 and up was an A where I think now right. in some schools I don't know how many of them but I know some schools they've lowered the grade average down. To where I think I could see is a 60 now or something like that. Right. And I think that's the biggest problem we got going on in our country, kind of like, and also with what you said, though, is just that we're just laying down the terms of, you know, hey, this is what you need to be doing rather than just, oh, you didn't do it. Okay. We'll just, we'll just make it better for you. That's okay. Don't worry. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And and so when I was uh, working on my PhD at Duke, you know, a lot of the American doctoral students, really big on they had memorized a lot of stuff but there were some students from other countries you know israel in particular uh, where they've been thought to think, think very critically sure and approach problems from a bunch of different perspectives and you know and what you were describing earlier was critical thinking where you're asking questions about these different studies and saying well let me look at a different one and who else has looked at this and um what are some of the smart questions that i could ask and th- there seems to be a shortage of that
1: i agree and and i don't know and i think it's just what you just said that even though the educational system there is falls with it though but it seems that also you know i was reading another I don't know if it was a study or somebody, if somebody talking on a podcast, he's a professor at Stanford and he was talking about how I think at Cal Berkeley or UCLA or whatever. But they were saying like how much smarter some of the students there are compared to previous years. And they were attesting that just because of technology today, just where people were able to pull up information on their phones, screens, anytime they want to. And they're able to retain some of that information. but. I think it's a case by case scenario just because yes, that demographic or that population was able to do that. But then if we go towards, you know, kids seem to be not as smart today just because of technology too, at the same
2: time, it's like a double-edged sword, I guess, is what I'm going. Yeah. And one of my, one of my colleagues has talked about the fact that, you know, their social skills have become profoundly stunted. Of course. Um, And so, you know, by, by, creating safe spaces and, you know, and getting rid of playgrounds and those kinds of things, any place where there could be some kind of conflict, they have no experience having conflict. And so they've never developed those skills and they don't know how to engage the world. Once they've left that sort of safe Harbor of school, they really struggle to move into new environments and be resilient.
1: Is that because it was of the
2: first time from the parents,
1: is that because of overprotection from the parents?
2: Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Um, I think it's a change in social norms as well. Um, and we're not really, we've removed the the sort of practical experience of developing social skills and dealing with one another on the playground and learning how to collaborate or, or disagree. Um, we haven't replaced it with anything. We're not teaching kids social skills or how to disagree or how to engage. Um, in ways that are productive and successful for them. And so, you know, we see people just crumple at the first sign of adversity.
1: Yes. Yes, I agree. Especially, especially lately. And I don't know, again, I don't know if if that's part of COVID or just the world we live in today. But I think there's been a couple of studies also released about you know, the cognitive decline or that's we're well, not decline maybe, but uh how some adolescents their cognitive abilities have not been increased just because of COVID-19 and and living through a right. that type of or living through that type of uh quarantine life, I guess is what you to say.
2: Yeah, and so there's there's uh significant increases in mental health issues. Yes. Um yes. significant increases in you know, uh failure to thrive. For adolescents. and and part of that is that they faced a different type of adversity. They they have had a gap forced on them in terms of social interaction, and they're really quite stunted in in a lot of ways. And and we're talking generalities, right? So there's some who are who have thrived through it. Um, I know my kids. So I teach them the the model that I use for trust, and they've done extremely well. Um, you know, my older son has gone to Missouri on a baseball scholarship. Nice. And uh, you know, and, and Canada's a little more left leaning than the US is. Of course. And Missouri's a little more right leaning than other parts of the US. Of course. And so he had sort of a couple of degrees of of change. And then he's at a Baptist school, and we're not Baptist. And and so there's all these reasons that he could have failed. And he has thrived there. You know, he's been on the Dean's List every year. He's uh, on the varsity baseball team. He's he's doing well. Good. And a lot of it is because of his ability to build strong relationships and be resilient.
1: Well, that's a lot of it. I mean, you know, knowing who you are as a person and knowing what your morals and your values are. And like and you just said, you're teaching him your Trust model. I mean, and going to, I don't know how far Missouri from where you're at, but I'm sure, you know, I'm pretty sure it's a huge, it's a fair ways. Yeah. yeah. Fair ways. But going to, and he, even at a Baptist school where you said you're not Baptist. So, but he was able right. to put all those negative connotations aside and just saying, hey, I'm here to build relationships. I'm here to get on a dean's list and play baseball, you know? And a lot, yeah. a lot of, think, And I, he seemed to be in, this may be reflect on you too, but looking at more of the positive aspect of it instead of because it's so easy to focus on the negative things, you know, right there, there was three main ones and to say, well, what the hell right, I you know, do that? But where it's just like, nah, screw all that. I'm just going to go play baseball, man. And, you know, get my, yeah. and do big things. I mean, I'm not here to, you know, do the this, 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 and this, this is what I'm here to do.
2: Yeah. And he, he said, you know, when somebody is yelling at him about you're going to hell and because you're not a Baptist and all this kind of stuff, he just said. The thought goes through my head of this person really cares about me. <laughs> They're trying to save my soul. That's how much they care.
1: Yeah, that's great. See, and, that, and that's yeah. and that's cool that he can put that spin on it and think of it like that, where most people would instantly just, I guess, you know, curl, curl, curl up in a ball
2: and go hot, I guess, you know. Right. And And a lot of his cohort who went away to school only lasted for a semester or maybe a year and they couldn't handle it. And I applaud him. You know, my my younger son uh had significant learning disability, um and and struggled with that. And he is just he overcomes he's someone who meets a challenge and overcomes it. And you know, he had this experience when when he was young, he was playing baseball, and it's the first time a kid threw was throwing to him and he drilled him right in the face. Oh no. And so after that, he's terrified, right? And so he backs out as the kid's winding up. And and eventually he's got, you know, elbow pads and shoulder pads and, and a helmet with a mask. And like there are medieval knights that went into get combat with less gear on, right? And the other parents are like, oh, this is going to be so hard for you to watch. You know, you've got to, I feel so bad for him. And I said, you've got the wrong story. I said, how often do we get to face something that truly terrifies us and have a chance to overcome? Well, a lot of
1: people don't even want to face that, even if they know it's going to be something to terror. They instantly, you know, if there's a fork in a road, like, oh, this is going to be the hard way. Nope, not doing it. Nope, going to take these. Yeah.
2: And his his last at bat, because he never wanted to play baseball again, but his last at bat of the season, he got a base hit. And the fans from both teams gave him a standing ovation. That's awesome. And I said, your story is you're someone who overcomes. Yes. And this is part of being you know, their dad. I have a relentlessly positive story about them. And I interpret the world and I help them interpret the world through that positive lens. And so I'm a safe harbor from which they can take risks. They can go out in the world. They can fall down. They can get knocked around but there's always a safe place for them. Yeah.
1: Well, it's also they can learn from you just because, you know, going kind of going a full circle here back to where you started at, you know, go, being in a car crash and being hit by the fan over the head. I mean, you could have easily just, well, nah, I'm just going to go ahead and just lay around and do nothing. I'm going to lay down. Yeah, I'm just yeah. going to lay down. But, or you could decide, hey, i want to get up. I'm going to go get my PhD. I'm going to go write a book. I'm going to go build, you know, this thing on trust and make it something that, you know, give these ideas and ideologies to people and learn to trust and stuff like. Because, and, and when you, you know, when your father went through those kind of things, it's like, well, hell, I'm not. If he did it, I want to do it too. You know, I'm not going to sit here. Yeah. And sit down, You know what is that? And and then and then once you, you know reach that, that challenge, and you you know you take it on and you beat it or accept it or whatever you want to say, then you you get that kind of momentum of success right there to say, hey, I can do this. you know. Yeah. Yeah, and you get those wins that builds some stuff off, and you you start rolling with that.
2: So yes, yeah, that's yeah. Awesome. And and my aspiration is no less than making the world a better place. I love it. You know what? I, I uh, I've had some really profound impact with some of the clients I've worked with. You know, I've and I think my favorite couple of stories are around dads who who were estranged from their kids, who I worked with, who were able to completely turn around those relationships. Yes. And, you know, powerful, right? And life, life-altering life for folks. But I felt like I was dropping small grains of sand in the ocean. And what I need is people like you and your listeners to come alongside and pick up great big rocks and help me make waves. Of course. And that's why I wrote the book, so that I could share the model and and show people how to, how to actually pull those levers. It's why I built the masterclass. It's why I do the work that I do. You know the dedication for my book is is that my sons make me want to be a better person and they want me to make the world a better place
1: i love that daryl i think it's a good yeah. way to take this podcast home right there on that right there that's a good note to end this on so uh but before you go um if you want to plug your book or plug your master class or just anything in general you want to promote feel free to do that if you want people to find you all that good stuff
2: so you can find me uh, at trustunlimited.com. Uh, there's That's my website. There's a link to the book, uh, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World, or you can find it on Amazon or anywhere you order books. The masterclass is on the website. Um, reach out to me if, if you have questions. I, I'm a terrible businessman, but I love to help people. And so uh, if folks could get the book, read it, start applying the concepts. That's, that's the mission for me.
1: Is that, and real quick, when, I mean, you know, if somebody, like I said, you know, with me having felt like I haven't trust, trust issues my entire life, would that be one of the first things you would get somebody going into the, uh, right direction is read the concepts and start utilizing them?
2: I would, and, and start thinking about it in terms of what questions would I ask to, to make myself more comfortable. Uh, First thing I do is go to my blog section because there's free articles there. There are other podcasts, um, so other things that I've talked about. But there's articles you can go and look at and read, see the way I think about things. Um, But, yeah, find the book, read it, leave a review if you could, like, help spread the word. Of course.
1: Well, Daryl, thanks for being here. I'm glad we had this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Me too, brother. Got some good pearls and gems. And, uh, yeah, thanks again, man.
2: Thank you so much for having
1: me. All right. So uh, you good? Anything else you want to get out or are we good?
2: No, I think we're good.
1: Okay, cool. Well, all right, folks, you heard it. Um, All that good stuff. You know where to find Daryl now. Thank y'all. We're out of here. See you next time.